Welcome back to another episode of the Legendary Life Podcast. I'm your host, Ted Rice. This is the show that's all about taking your health, your body, and your life to the next level. And I have a fantastic show for you today. But before we get to that, I want to give a shout out to Golden Nugget Ghee. They reached out to me, Daniel Draskinis, if I'm pronouncing his name right. He said, hey, Ted, I want to send you a couple of bottles of ghee for you to try out. And I tried it out. It's it's excellent. Now, I've cooked with ghee before. And if you don't know what ghee is, it's clarified butter. And you may be asking yourself, if you're not on the paleo ancestral health tip, what the hell is clarified butter, right? But what it is, it's butter with all the healthy fats in it, but it has the milk solids removed from it. So if you're lactose intolerant or if you have any problem digesting dairy at all, Ghee is what you want to use in place of butter, and you won't have that reaction to it. I don't have an issue eating milk, by the way, but the taste of Golden Nugget Ghee is fantastic. And he just sent me some. He didn't ask me, hey, you know, there's no special deal or affiliate or anything like that. He just sent it to me. He didn't even ask me to do this, I guess, this this review, but I wanted to share it because I thought it was really nice of him to do that. And hey, I want to spread the love. And if it was was a terrible product, I, I wouldn't have uh, said anything, right? But goldennuggetgee.com if you're into paleo and ancestral health like I am. So you can check it out there. Fantastic. And always I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Natural Stacks, before we get started. If you want to try some of the best supplements on the planet, go to naturalstacks.com. Use my name, T-E-D-R-Y-C-E, no spaces, all capital letters, at checkout for a 15% discount on me. So let's get to today's guest, Dan Party. Now this guy, he is the CEO of Dan's Plan. He has a master's degree in exercise physiology, and he's getting his PhD in cognitive sciences, so neuroscience in other words. And he is particularly studying the way sleep influences our decision-making. He's a big fan of ancestral health. This guy works with naval special warfare teams and just all types of people. He is brilliant. And I asked him to come on the show to talk today about how we can change our behavior, what goes into the science behind getting us to do what we know we need to do. For example, you've heard a bunch of podcasts, probably many of mine and and many of other people's podcasts, but I want to ask you, how much of it do you actually do? Now, I know you've probably experienced some serious aha paradigm shifting perspective changing moments from listening and that's awesome but I want to know how much have you done and that's what we're going to get into today so I'm not going to take up any more time enjoy the episode on how to change your behavior with Dan Party Dan Party, welcome to the Legendary Life Podcast. Ted, thank you so much for having me on. It's really a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. it's The pleasure is all mine. I've been following <laughs> your stuff recently, learning about you, and I've seen you, like I talked to you about earlier, for several years, and then finally we're getting to connect, and I, 
I dove into your material, watched some of your talks. Just great to have you on the show. But if someone isn't familiar with you, Dan, could you talk a little bit about what you do? Absolutely. So I develop tools to help people live a better life and to uh, you know achieve their achieve their health goals, which sometimes means helping people kind of clarify what they are. And I also do research. So currently, the questions that I'm looking at research-wise is how sleep loss will influence decision-making around eating and also uh, how what I call ecologically relevant amounts of sleep loss or just so just getting an hour or two less per night versus missing a whole night, how that can influence hormones as well. So I like to have a foot in research and um, there's always interesting questions to ask, but then I really like to then try to take a body of knowledge on a subject and then create health applications that can help improve how somebody lives. And that's one of the things that really drew me to you, your message, your information is that you have a master's degree in exercise physiology, you're a PhD candidate for cognitive neuroscience, and you're really looking into the science behind what makes us healthier, but also how to apply it practically. And I think that's super cool. And Dan, let's hear a little bit about your backstory. Were you a personal trainer? Is that how it started? How did this all start for you to get you to where you are today? Yeah. So at one point I was a personal trainer. Before that, I was just a, you know, a young kid who had athletic ambitions was into soccer and basketball, particularly basketball. That lit a major fire under me. And I experienced some injury when I was younger. And that, I think, was really important to do what I'm doing today because it helped from an early age have me focus internally to say, okay, oh gosh, I've got this problem that I need to fix. What do I do? And that started me off learning, okay, well, how does the, you know, the knee work and how do I improve it? And how does the ankle work? And th- you know, things like that. And that, I think set me on a trajectory which was really undefined for a long time because it started with an interest in sports performance and healing too. So I thought I wanted to go into sports medicine. That made a lot of sense. But then as I learned more about sciences, uh, I really gravitated more towards hard sciences. So I went into exercise physiology. And if you think about the range of exercise physiology, that can be, on one hand, application to help people improve performance. But on the other hand, it's actually just looking at physiology under non-stable conditions, so dynamic conditions. What happens to blood pressure and heart rate and cardiac output when we are in a hot environment, when we're exercising? So exercise is almost a misnomer in, a, in some ways. It's, it's a little bit of a limited term. Dynamic physiology is really what we were looking at. And I was looking at how body fat is regulated by the brain. And that, so that, that basically kicked off a whole area of interest for me. And then another important element of my story is that when I graduated with my master's, I started to do cancer research at a place called the Preventative Medicine Research Institute. And my father was then diagnosed with cancer. And so I was in this position where I was like, okay, I am studying how lifestyle can influence the development of cancer. Here's my father who I think I can help. And I would sit down and I would tell him all that I knew to try to help him. And he would listen, you know, proudly, but he wouldn't make any change. And when I, um, you know, I did the, I did the equivalent of just raising my voice every time, you know, every like month or two, we'd sit down again and I'd be like, Hey, I'm disappointed. And let me give you more information. And when he passed away, uh, I did take it a bit personally. I was like, Hey, I could have helped my father and I didn't. So I need to learn more about behavior because 
it's not, it's not enough to just know what matters, but you have to also know about people. And I took a very sincere interest in understanding different behavior models, uh, different aspects of, you know, what behavior is and what drives it. Because, you know, ultimately you can't be healthy for people, but the best you can do from somebody in my position is try to facilitate health, make it easier for them, help them get better at it and give them a good clear path and also good objectives. You know, you could do all those things. You could get them motivated, get them educated. But if, if you're also using an ineffective paradigm, then that's a problem too. So, you know, this is a, a lifetime project for sure. I mean, any one of these slivers would be just understanding behavior. It could be, I could try to become an expert just in that and it would take a lifetime or just in sleep or nutrition or exercise. But I'm trying something that I think is really valuable, which is to have an adequate amount of understanding of each of these subjects and then pull together something for people that they can uh, significantly benefit from for the rest of their lives so that the rest of their lives have kind of a different quality to them. And whether that means day-by-day -day performance or if it also means, you know, the, the uh, quality of life for the latter third of their life and, the, you know, even, even longevity and life extension, can you, you know, end premature mortality? So there's lots of you know, I'm, I'm interested in health in general and every aspect of it. So that's kind of a little bit more about me. Yeah. And Dan, it's, it's interesting because you and I have so many parallels. I got injured when I was trying to be, you know, a badass and, and try to work out hard. And that yeah. really changed my perspective too. It's like, oh, I'm not as tough as I thought. I'm not invincible or indestructible. In fact, I'm in a lot of pain right now. Changed my trajectory as well and and dealing with some of the health issues that you mentioned in your family with your dad unfortunate circumstances but like you mentioned people can know what to do but they need to actually shift their behavior do something different create new habits and i want to get into that but before we do can you give us your perspective on the state of modern life as it affects our health Yes, I think that's such a it's such an important question because before you even kind of, you know, dive into how to change behavior, you have to understand the context with which our behaviors are being implemented in life today and a very strong theme of what guides my, you know, the work that I do is this idea that a lot of health issues are due to a mismatch between how we live, the default patterns by which we live and are the expectancies of our genes. So it, we lived, you know, I wouldn't say one way, but there was a more common pattern with how we lived for millennia. And now that has changed very, very fast, particularly from the perspective of our genes. So culture and society can change much more rapidly than our genes can to adjust to these, to these changes. So now a child is born into a world that is very foreign in terms of their its biology. And what I mean by this is that the patterns of light exposure that we that we get are very different than our ancestors. The types of food that we have available, very different. The actual pressures, compulsory education, sitting in class, listening to an adult. I just had a really great conversation with somebody, a professor, Stephen Henshaw, who just won the the kind of the lifetime achievement award for the, from the American Psychological Association. He's a vice. He was the vice chair at Berkeley in the psychology department, and then also the vice chair at UCSF. So extraordinarily well credentialed and a lot of achievement. And we talk about you know ADHD. That's been one of the focuses of his career. And his entire 
you know, our entire chat together was talking about how is, do we really have a lot more ADHD from a core physiological perspective, or is it really just manifesting when we put people, children in this compulsory education situation? That's really when this came about sitting all day, right? And in a lot of ways that anecdote is emblematic of so many other things about all of, for all of us, right? We are putting ourselves in strange situations and then weird things happen. And so what I think we need to do is start with an effective paradigm. And that paradigm for me is looking at pre-modern lifestyle patterns as the basis of modern day health directives. So how do we, how do we look, how are we informed by how we used to live to guide how we live today? And it's not, you know, I think creating that architecture and then looking at science to then shape it, you know, shape it and refine it. And, you know, I think it's not about just living exactly like, it's not about giving up all of modernity, all of our, you know, modern conveniences, but it's being well informed about, you know, again, things like light exposure. Do we want to be staring into, you know, our iPhone or high definition televisions at 11 o'clock at night? Or are there some things based upon our knowledge about, you know, light exposure at different times of the day that can guide how we live? Whether it's turning the television off or if it's wearing blue filtering glasses, there are just choices that we can make that can significantly improve how we live if we have the right information. And then, you know, then it's about implementing it and developing skills around that knowledge. So it's, uh, you know, life is, poses a challenge. And I very much believe that you can follow the default pattern of, you know, that life will throw at you and there will be consequences for it. Or you can educate yourself and you can treat health as almost like a martial art, right? You have to develop skills that accompany your knowledge. But every time you develop a skill, kind of like riding a bike, you can do that skill forever. And whether or not you do is one thing, but having skills is super important. And um, a big problem with the way that health information is shared today is that it's, you know, people might have a very sincere interest in it, but you might listen to 10 podcasts on a subject and read a bunch of blogs and you still haven't developed the skills to benefit from the knowledge. And so that, that's a big important thing about what I try to do. It's not just sharing the knowledge, it's developing skills and then it's keeping somebody engaged. Let's dive into that. And I want to get your take on this first. I brought this up in a talk that I actually did last Sunday. And it was for something kind of different. It was on overcoming adversity. But people make these statements, which I call identity statements. And I'm sure I got that term from someone else, but I can't remember who. And people will say, well, you know, I know I need to exercise, but I'm just not a fitness person. Oh, I know I need to make better choices nutrition wise, but I just like eating junk food. I like eating fast food, or I know I need to get to bed on time. I know I need to stay off my phone, but I'm, I'm just not that type of person. When someone makes those statements that are kind of like what they believe to be their identity, how do you shift that person to understanding and I guess I'm, this is a leading question, but how do you think about it? And then how do you get them to shift their behavior to understanding that a person who goes to the gym is not inherently any different other than the fact that they develop the habit to do something or the skill like you mentioned earlier? Yeah, so this taps, this question, which is an excellent one, taps into a lot of elements of behavior modification in general. So when we talk about behavior change, 
behavior change theories or models, these are things that will try to describe, predict, or explain why behavior does change. What are the circumstances that gets somebody from saying, you know what, I don't see myself that way to somebody who says, I do see myself that way and I'm acting in accordance with my own self-perception. That is fundamental to the entire field. And, you know, there's lots of different theories that that will basically put together some model that, again, tries to either, you know, explain why behaviors are changing, but it can also serve as a template. Sometimes model behavior models can serve as a template to try to facilitate behavior change. So at the core of what you're saying is a person's belief about who they are and also a belief about externally behavior that they that you're wanting them to engage with. And I just interviewed a, a great guy, a friend, Dustin DiTamiasso, senior vice president at a company called MadPal, and they do a lot of experience design for health applications in the health sphere and other sectors as well. But they've really made a great name for themselves in, in health. They even throw their own conference every year in collaboration with Health 2.0. So Dustin talks regularly about something called self-determination theory. And this is a theory that is really looking at core human needs so, you know, if you're looking at, you know, kind of fundamental human needs, psychological needs, social needs, physical needs. And if you look, the, the big element of kind of motive, it's, it's, a, it's a theory about motivation. And there are, there's controlled motivation, and then there is autonomous motivation. So controlled motivation is trying to get somebody to do something with external rewards or punishment, right? Hey, if you, if you do this, we're going to give you a $50 gift certificate at the end of the quarter for successfully completing this behavior? Are you compliant with our ideas for you? Right. Right. The then carrot and stick method, right? The carrot yeah. at the end of the stick method. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The punishment is, you know, oftentimes that, well, you, you either don't get the reward or something worse, right? It, it, you have something taken away. Another element of controlled motivation is something called interjected, where you're doing it because you have a sense of guilt, right? Or anxiety, like, oh man, I, I didn't go to the gym and I need to. And I really should, uh, or it's kind of more pride and ego fulfillment. You know, you're doing something that, and this has something to do with like what we were talking about a little bit earlier, which is, you know, you're, you're going because you are in a way, you know, let's say engaging in bodybuilding to look a certain way. The problem with that is that's not necessarily bad, but what happens when you're not looking at your best? You don't bench as much as you, you know, your max amount. The entire reason for doing a behavior could actually crumble, and that after we see that a lot with with athletics, somebody's doing great when they're on the upswing, when their performance is is rising, but they either get to the point where you can't sustain it any longer; it's dominating your life, or you know you can't eat perfectly clean all the time, and it could significantly undermine your motivation to continue doing the health behavior because it's based off of a, an external, ego driven, pride driven motivational source. So these are elements of controlled motivation. But then as you move along the spectrum in self-determination theory, you're moving more towards identified, integrated, and intrinsic motivations. So these are things like, okay, well, I'm going to do this because this behavior has a personal importance. I value the behavior and it's a part of my internal belief system. That's important. So you recognize, hey, this is a really important thing for me to do. It's not, this is something that somebody else thinks it's important for me. Right. So they can see the difference there. And belief system is like, okay, yeah, I get it. I definitely believe that this is valuable. That's now you're moving along this motivational spectrum. Integrated is where not only do you believe that it's valuable, 
but you actually believe it's part of who you are. And so much, I don't think, like I'm a big proponent of technology. We can talk more about that later. But I think when an over-reliance on technology is a problem. I think technology can work, but it has to be against the backdrop of a mindset that mm. is effective. So, so much of what I do is to try to help facilitate an effective mindset. Let's talk about that. When you say sure. mindset, how do you think about it? Obviously, there's the Carol Dweck fixed versus growth. What is your perspective, your take, and how do you create that awareness or create that mindset in a person who's having trouble changing their habits? It's funny because developing an effective mindset can be different than the behavior set that accompanies it. And, but oftentimes they will travel together. So as you develop more successful experiences within a behavior, it'll reinforce your own both belief system and also your self-concept. So you might, like oftentimes, a lot of behavior models, um, particularly within the social cognitive theory by Albert Bandura, is to try to facilitate exposure to health behaviors so that people can see other people doing it successfully. And then that can give somebody a perspective like, okay, you know, I could, this can be done. I can do it. And that oftentimes can be a first step. It's a before and after pictures, <laughs> why they work so well, right? Totally. It is a, it's a very clear, those have their own problems to them as well. But oftentimes, you know, uh, showing somebody who you're trying to get simply to walk, you know, 10,000 steps a day, showing them a picture of somebody that's extremely fit can have an opposite effect. It can actually demotivate somebody. Mm. And so, but if you show somebody who is the same age, same body type, walking 7,500 steps a day where you're only walking 4,000 steps a day, that actually is a diff that can be much more motivational because the size, the increment of the, the change and the person that you can actually see doing it is much more similar to yourself. So you don't want to so show a 50-year-old guy who's got three kids, doesn't sleep well, high-stress job, a transformation of a 25-year-old guy who is in college and, right, it needs to be something they can connect with emotionally, like see themselves in that behavior, in, in that place. That's absolutely right. And I think that's a problem with even a, with a lot of motivation is very relevant to your current position. And if you can, you want to be, that's why a, a lot of corporate wellness programs that are structured ineffectively, inappropriately, you'll have leaderboards, right? Well, what happens? Well, you know, a leaderboard for steps will celebrate best performers and people that are kind of, you know, type A and competitive. What does it do to the people that are, you know, getting 4,000 steps a day? Well, it will be punishing. And what happens, punishment will typically make uh, an animal, a human, eventually just turn off to the system. So mm -hmm. punishment is really a very interesting motivational trigger. So B.F. Skinner, over the course of his life, you know, punishment can actually change behavior, but what happens is people try to avoid the punishment and instead of doing the behavior or avoiding the behavior. And so you have to be very careful with, with punishment and things, and the punishment can be kind of subconsciously built into a system if it's not designed right. So, you know, what you try to do is if you're dealing with a low performing individual, someone who's just trying to start a health behavior for the first time, you don't want to have any punishment at all. You want to just use positive emotion reinforcing things to get them to do the right behavior. The reason why I pause there is because positive and negative reinforcement are, are both, they're uh, 
the way that people think of negative reinforcement is actually punishment, but positive reinforcement has to do with like removing something to get somebody to do it. And mm. positive re- reinforcement means adding something to get somebody to do it. So they're both, both positive and negative reinforcement are both reinforcing. <laughs> so not to geek out on a behavioral science term, but it's, uh, I just caught myself thinking that when I was saying it, but positive emotion. So you're having somebody feel good about any time they engage in that behavior. And if they don't, then, you know, you're neutral. And then when they do it again, you reward them. So now if you're already dealing with somebody who's doing something pretty well, like for example, if you're generally getting 10,000 steps per day, then a little bit of punishment can actually light a fire under you and get you to do it. So even these different motivational techniques have very much to do with where the person is and if they are generally good at adhering to the behavior or if they are just getting going. So you have to understand behavioral science in order to construct a system well so that you know, you're actually helping everybody do better. And actually, that's, it's important too. When doing better, you know, do you want to try to help somebody who's getting 14,000 steps a day try to get 15? No, probably not. I mean, it's okay if they do, but do you want to just run somebody at, you know, into the ground where, hey, now you're getting 15,000 steps. Great. We're going to now get, help you get 16,000. And that is another problem with a lot of behavior modification systems or tools is that they, it's just, they kind of treat everybody as the same. Everybody kind of gets the same degree of punishments and rewards. And then, and it just keeps, you know, more is better. And that's not always, that's not always the case at all. So anyway, I think I got off a little bit on a, a tangent there, but you have to understand the person that you're dealing with in order to apply the right, you know, behavior set. But going back to, you know, mindset is you have to, you know, try to understand where that person is coming from and you have to then show them that it's possible, try to diffuse any guilt or frustration that they might have when they don't, because that, that even though that own internal kind of interjected feeling can get in the way of somebody continuing the behavior. And then definitely want to try to build, again, like knowledge and skills and make it easy for somebody. So make it super easy for them to do the right thing. And then you can build sophistication and level them up until they get to kind of what I call like a standard, a standard level or kind of a health zone. So yeah, it's complex. (laughs) Yeah. And I really enjoyed that because I'm running a coaching group right now. And I know you have a human OS that you're coming out with very, very soon. And we'll get into that more And, um, you know, and as a personal trainer works with people for the past 17 years, and I'm sure you experienced this as well. It's really about creating that environment that causes them to do the things that they need to do, but also feel good about it. And I've never used punishment. And uh, I'm so glad you're saying all this because to recap a little bit of what you said, at least because you said a lot there and a lot of it is, was over my head and I can't wait to listen to this again, to dive <laughs> deeper into the behavior theories and everything. But you've got to get people understanding, getting rid of the guilt, getting people understanding the value of doing what they're doing. They have to understand the value behind it and they have to buy into that belief and they need to get rid of the guilt where like a lot of people, Dan, they think that I'm Mr. Perfect when it comes to eating, comes to exercise. And, and obviously I'm not, and neither is anyone else, but a lot of fitness professionals, they have that image, at least on social media, right? Yep. So creating the, the habits, 
positively reinforcing them with emotions, with positive emotions, understanding the value. I've got a couple questions. What questions should a person ask themselves to see if they have the type of mindset that will lead to success? Yeah. So another interesting theory to, I think, reference is to, to lay as a backdrop to answering this question is a famous one. And it's also kind of a controversial one, actually. It is the trans theoretical model or the stages of change. So this one has been talked about for, you know, 30 years. And the idea is that there's, there's basically five different components, which is of behavior change. Pre-contemplation, this is where an individual may or may not even be aware that there's a problem that needs to be addressed, but has no thought of changing their behavior. So even if they're aware of the problem, they're not thinking about changing their behavior yet. Then there's the contemplation period where an individual starts to begin to think about changing their behavior for the first time. Then they start to maybe, and then, you know, you might ruminate on that for a while. Then you might go into what's considered the preparation of action phase. This is where you start to think about, okay, well, not just maybe I will, but how would I do it? And what would I do? Maybe should I read this book? Should I follow this person's guidance? Should I start? Maybe I'll shop on Sunday and cook on Sunday. Maybe I'm going to sign up for the gym. You start to then actually take plan. You make plans to, you're preparing for the change. Then there's the action phase. And this is where individuals begin to exhibit the new behavior pretty consistently. So maybe you dabble with it for a little while, but now you're going to the gym twice a week, three times a week. You're walking 10,000 steps a day, whatever the behavior is. And then there's the maintenance phase. And this stage happens once they've exhibited the new behavior consistently for over six months. And so this theory is trying to describe from a, almost like a 30,000 foot perspective, what are these stages of change that somebody is, is going to you know, go through? And so you can actually see how someone's perspective changes from, I recognize it's a problem. I'm not really thinking about doing it. I'm actually thinking about doing something about it. How do I actually do it, prepare, you know, integrate it in my life? I'm now, now that I'm doing it, but it's kind of a vulnerable period. I may or may not stick with it. And now maintenance is like, all right, I've been doing it consistently for a while. So this is more a part of who I am. That is, you can kind of see how the mindset has shifted in there. Yeah. What I think is, is really important for probably a personal bias, but having a clear rationale for why to do something I think is really, really valuable. Now, this is sometimes undermined today when you look at a lot of psychology, popular psychology books that talk about how a lot of our behaviors are not driven necessarily by, you know, the reflective system of the brain, the, the brain that's contemplating and thinking. It's more about the responsive systems in the brain, the things that are just reacting to your, again, environment, et cetera the way that you set up your environment can then make it a lot easier for yourself. And so I do think that the way that we view things uh, is, is, is actually very, very important. So education does matter. And a big part of, you know, human OS, not to, you know, dive into that, but because it's, it's fundamental to what, what I'm doing is I feel that what I want people to do is actually to take a step back and say, I'm not going to, the appropriate mindset for become, being a healthy person isn't that, hey, I'm going to learn everything and then do it. It's rather that I'm a lifelong learner. I'm going to spend some of my time regularly devoted to all things health, whether it's the doing, but it's also the learning. I'm going to continue to stay involved. I'm going to continue to stay engaged. 
And what tends to be, you know, the, there's different types of characteristics that will make somebody more interested. Usually, maybe you have a, a, a background of health activity through, through sports. Maybe you are a performance optimizer currently, so you recognize the connection between health and mental performance and you want to perform well at your job or in social relationships, et cetera. I want to have en enough energy for my kids, things like that. Or you are what I call the unsatisfied sick. So you're somebody who is suffering in some way from an unresolved health issue. So maybe you went to the doctor and were given a pill and it didn't completely resolve the issue or the doctor couldn't quite figure it out. It, you know, you have, are carrying more weight than you'd like to. You have some you know, aches and pains, whatever it is. That can then become a person who is now seeking information because they're motivated to do so, right? There's a reason for them to do it. So either you're trying to be a performance optimizer, you're trying to solve an unsatisfactory issue. A lot of these things provide the conditions to have to somebody who's like, okay, I want to now become a better, I want to become better at my own health. And under that condition, I think having a very clear understanding of, I think both the architecture of like, hey, what's the big problem that we're trying to solve? And then almost a, a comfort to say, I might not be able to solve everything at once, even though I'm going to, I'm going to try, I'm not going to just do, I might try to like affect multiple things in my life immediately, but I'm going to continue to refine. I'm going to continue to learn. I'm going to continue. I'm going to enjoy the process of understanding what makes my body work better. And I think that that enjoyment of acquiring new knowledge that can improve your life is an amazing gift that somebody can identify when you're like, Oh, you know what? I like knowing more about the human body because it can directly affect my life. That I think is a, is a key perspective that will be a part of a, somebody who sticks with the behavior. Dan, I love this talk and you are truly giving a masterclass on understanding ourselves, understanding our behavior and understanding the stages that are involved with what we do, because I don't have any problems exercising. Yeah. I've been doing that professionally. I'm so sold into learning about it all the time. But there are yeah. other areas where I, I can definitely relate to those yeah. stages. And you're talking to a group of people, the people who listen to this podcast. Obviously, this is not celebrity gossip or politics or anything that is, you know, this is supposed to be useful information to change people's lives that they can take get inspired by and also take action on. So you're talking to a group who I think understands that, who gets that. Ah, you know, I think about the people who don't though, that just came to my mind how yeah. we're living in a society who's kind of plugged in to the news, to the doom and gloom, to the sensationalism, instead of focusing on things that are immediately applicable to their life. And the, the question I have for you, because we've been focusing on the person, what is the person? What's the mindset? What is their why for doing things? What are the stages for that person? But what happens if you're surrounded by people who are plugged into the matrix to, to, you know, reference the, the movie from 1999, who are kind of, you know, they're, they're kind of part of the problem in a way because they're not focusing on stuff to educate. They're not focusing on information that will actually make an improvement in their life. They're focusing on the kind of the things that tease the more ancient parts of our brain 
but actually yeah. don't help. What do you have to say about that in support groups and social support in general? Yeah. And, you know, this is one of those challenges that I had to, I think, acknowledge that it might be out of my scope to fix. Now, any point, any one of these individuals that you speak of can sublimate into one of these other conditions where they're, they have sufficient motivation to seek, you know, to seek change, to seek solutions to help them. And that can happen at any time and can happen for a lot of people. But usually it's driven by I want to be better some way, whether it's my performance or it's my health or both. But but a lot of people, like you said, they don't have enough of a problem and they don't have enough time to focus on anything other than kind of the stuff that's in front of them, being good at their job, raising a family, you know, you know, being a part of a their own social network. And so they default to again, the default pattern. In that case, for a lot of those people, I think it's more policy that's going to help these these folks. So it's what is what are their options that can kind of guide them? Does their community support bike lanes and do they start to see more people being healthy? You tend to see health cluster in different locales because whether it's obesity or health behaviors, because if you see somebody else doing it, it normalizes the behavior. Right. So if, if everybody around you is obese and eating a certain way, then that's just that's just what you do, and you you have you're more likely to assume the same, the behavior set of those around you, unless you want to be a weirdo and you want to, which I think it's really good to be a weirdo, you know, have the confidence to do that, which means acting differently than everybody else, particularly if everybody else is not being healthy, or <laughs> sometimes if somebody if you're in a community that's too healthy, then you have to hold back and, and use your, you know, use some common sense too. So uh, yeah, order can, that slice of pizza. I'll have a slice of pizza, extra meat, please. Yeah. 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 Totally. <laughs> I can't stand people who are on the extremes. I'm, I'm right there with you. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that can be as much of a problem too. And I try to look at trajectories and patterns and I think about my goal. So part of what I do with Human OS is we have these, we, these aspirations to live as an intelligent eater, an enduring mover, a restorative sleeper. So let's look at enduring mover, for example. So the enduring mover is somebody who maintains kind of healthy functional capacity throughout their life and also changes the trajectory of their health by this regular health practice, right? Engaging in good physical behavior. So how do then, okay, great, I want that. I want to be able to be functional and I want to have lifelong health. Cool, that's the backdrop. Now, occasionally, though, I might want to, I have my general pattern of maintenance where I'm trying to work on mobility, I'm trying to work on having good stamina and strength, but then occasionally I might want to just dedicate and be a, a, an absolute performer because I'm training to go on a, you know, intense ride. I call those, you know, these physical challenges that can actually really serve you in your life. It, the problem is when you, you know, you've, I'm sure you've seen this problem, Ted, where you see people that just live in the performance mindset and then they have these steep drop-offs. So you're, they train hard for six weeks, but then something gets in the way and then they don't train for four months, you know. Absolutely. Because, right? And, and, you, and I want to try to help people support this idea that it's like I've got my good baseline. I'm keeping everything healthy. And then occasionally if I want to take on one of these challenges for a specific reason, a fun run to something more intense – it's that's there for me to kind of choose, but I don't. My, when I revert back from my intense training, I don't fall off the cliff. I fall back into my healthy pattern because I enjoy it so much. 
Yeah, just a brief interjection there. The way I was able to fall back in love with exercise was I found gymnastic strength training, and Mm. I'm not very good at it. Mm -hmm. And I'm years away from overcoming some of the injuries that I have, but also building up the strength and mobility to do some of the things I want. And I'm like, awesome. I'm good. I'm good for years because I'm, I'm at such a, a point. But before that, I was kind of, I was not excited about my workouts. So it's great that you, you bring that up. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And then let's get yeah. into the other things, the restorative sleeper. And what was the nutrition one? What did you call the nutrition? Yeah, intelligent eater. Intelligent um, eater, love it. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, and these are again kind of aspirations. So this idea where you have a goal, it's not telling you specifically how to do it. It's more like restorative sleep is an easy one. I wake refreshed and I feel alert all day, every day. And do you want that? Yeah, I want that. Cool. How do you do it? All right, what are the determinants of good sleep? Timing, intensity, duration, light exposure. All right, then you can start to kind of retro engineer how to achieve that aspiration, and that is. So you want to, you know, the aspiration is something that you can, it's not going to inspire a lot of debate amongst how to do it, right? So you start there. Yeah, we want this. Cool. Let's now talk about how to do it. So that's part of that goal. The other thing that I'll mention too, which I think is really important is uh, I think, you know, the common way to try to change behavior has has typically been to focus on long-term negative health outcomes. So, hey, if you don't do this, you have the very real chance of getting cardiovascular disease, which is a major killer in the United States. Now, so abstract, right? Too yeah, abstract. Exactly. Yeah, yeah it, it's intangible, and in a, and that sort of while you might fully <laughs> agree, hey, I don't want that. That is disadvantage to changing your behavior right now because you can you then ask yourself, well, well, if I if I what how is it going to affect what I do today? I could, I could put it off to tomorrow. It's pretty intangible you know, how much heart disease I'm going to get and when, and is it really even going to affect me? I mean, a lot of people don't get it. So that, I think that focusing on those secondary health health outcomes is actually something that you can use as a secondary motivational source to get somebody to do it. Personally, I like to focus on how healthy living helps you live better now, Love today. It. Yeah. And, you know, so when I work with Navy SEALs, or investment bankers or, you know, VCs or startups, whatever, or individuals, right? I I say, okay, everything that you care to do well, you'll do better with a healthy lifestyle, with good sleep, with physical activity. So if you look at some of my writing on the blogs, I look at how exercise will influence cognition and mental performance. So if you want to perform really well in that meeting, that thing that you care about, that you do, if you want to look good tomorrow, then do these things, right? And, and, that I think has a much, well, it does clearly have a much tighter feedback loop. And we know that tight feedback loops have a better chance of getting somebody to perform better or to actually engage with the behavior more consistently and regularly. So this is again, kind of part of like that bigger kind of infrastructure of all right, how are we doing it? And what is like, when is the emphasis of our focus? And it's about, I personally think no matter who you are, if you want to live better now, then that, I mean, personally, it motivates me to, you know, do my, since I'm not trying to strive for a specific exercise goal, like, Hey, beat this team or bench press more or whatever, then I engage with my daily exercise practice because I recognize now how it can influence how well I think, how, how well I write, how well I do my job. And so, you know, I understand intellectually the connection, but then I've also then been able to get exposure to 
the benefits, which reinforces me continuing to do them, which is really, really important. It's can you help give people mass, you know, experiences where they get experience to that reinforcer? I got a great night's sleep for three weeks. I get it. I totally see how well that makes me feel. Now I have more of an internal intrinsic motivation to continue to do it versus just the intellectual. I get the connection to health and performance and sleep. Yeah. Love that. Love that. It seems like you learned it along the way studying. I'm sure you learned it from an experiential perspective as well, working with people, but it seems like you studied it. I kind of stumbled upon that as I started to change my why for exercise, because I'm not trying to change my, although I just said, you know, I'm trying to do these things, gymnastic strength training. My main why is to keep myself to lower my stress, to make sure I perform well every single day. Because my, I, I, as we talked about before, I'm trying to get my black belt in business and, and turning this yeah. into something that really impacts people's lives in a positive way and a lot of people's lives, much more than the one-on-one. Dan, I already yeah. know I'm going to have to get you back because we're talking all about the why. We're talking all about the behavior change, the phases of how that happens, the the particular phases, I'd love to get you back on to talk about the how, because yeah. I just feel like you're, you're someone who I could talk to for hours, your wealth of information, but I'd like to wrap up this yeah. particular interview talking about how technology is going to help, us, although it's taking us away from that more natural environment, it's going to start helping us get back to that. Can you talk a little bit about that and also how Human OS, your program, helps people do that as well? Absolutely. So technology, we tend to think of technology as a Fitbit, but it can also simply be delivering information. I mean, the internet is so ubiquitous that we sometimes forget it's like it, it's an incredible technology, you know, just for finding information. You know, it's now to connect with people you know, like if, if I were to say, Hey, tell me about a health technology, you might say Fitbit over just Google, you know? Right. Um, but yeah, there's, so on one hand, the internet is, you know, both good and bad because there is a lot of information out there, a lot of good information, but how do you find it? So, and how do you trust it? So one thing that you can do is try to create a source with technology that people trust and you can earn trust by, you know, showing your work instead of just saying, hey, do this because I say so, you can show them the process by which you underwent in order to arrive at that recommendation. And then sometimes people, it's funny, if you look at scientific papers, they've changed over the last like 10 years or so. It used to be that you would, and a lot of papers still conform to this, you know, the series, but you'd have your abstract introduction methods, results, findings. What you see the trend is, is now you're putting the findings and the results up front. And so if you think about it, it's like, hey, this is why we did it and here's what we found. And then at that point, you have probably a lot more interest to understand how they went about getting it. You mm. have more interest in the methods once you understand the subject versus like, I don't really want to look at a lot of methods before I really understood what they, what they, what they found. And I think that is an analogy to how you can even structure this. People can come at this a lot of different ways. Some people will want to say, okay, show me, you know, kind of show me the work. Some people might say, hey, you know, vitamin D is really important. And I'm now taking it every day, but I want to know more about it. And that I think is really key is that you don't 
have to necessarily walk somebody through the standard process of like, you start here, this is all the information. You might have a lot more desire to know more about it, even after you even started the behavior. So that's kind of an interesting thing. But the other thing about technology, which has been really exciting, is this is the use of these wearable devices where you can instrument yourself with these passive sensors that can collect information. And there's a, several, you know, there's value to this where I think of these devices not just as trackers that just tell you what you've done, but actually as performing enhancing devices. The value of something that can give you real-time feedback while you're doing the behavior is much more valuable than something that collects the data and tells you what you did later. And that's an example between Jawbone and Fitbit. Many of the Fitbits, for example, if, you, if you're not familiar with those, these are wearable devices. You wear them on your wrist now mostly. And the Jawbone has just suffered terribly. They raised right. a ton of money, half a billion dollars, poor adoption, nice style. But they, you know, they're a Bluetooth company. Early on, this is a device that you had to actually plug into your phone, download the data, and then pull up you know, what your, what your scores were, how many steps did you take? Think about the best way to think about a wearable device is when you're looking at your steps, it's equivalent to looking at the time who would want to wear a watch just so that you'd have to sync it with your phone and then pull up the time later. The chances of you really engaging with that are really diminished. Now you need to know the time even more than you need to know steps. But if you can just glance at your wrist and say, okay, I'm at 2000 steps right now, that can actually much and much more effectively guide what you do. The other thing about this idea of performance enhancing is that it helps you set goals. And Susan Mitchie at University College in London did a really interesting analysis, meta-analysis of 27 different behavior modification techniques. And what she found, the, the ones that had the, the greatest effect on behavior were things relative to control theory. And these, this is things like setting a goal, reviewing your goal, getting feedback on your goal. And this all kind of taps back into Albert Bandura's some of his early work that shows that, hey, if you, this is all around self-efficacy, the more you actually help somebody set a goal and get feedback along the way, the more likely they are to achieve it. Interesting. So I think, you know, the, feed, the Fitbit, now, okay, now we're talking about behavior change, but do steps actually matter? Well, they do. And it's a marker of low intensity physical activity. People will question the value of steps when they think it's, gosh, steps are just a really poor, it's a, tracking my steps is a really poor way to measure my exercise. I think of it as a different class of physical activity. So in order for you to be able to kind of empower, you have to empower these devices with value in order for you to then let them guide you. They're not going to be healthy for you. So that is where, this is kind of an example of how you have to design a system that takes all this into consideration, help people understand the value of steps. And then instead of trying to just constantly reduce the, the friction, thinking, oh, we'll, we'll change behavior better if we just lower the friction enough for these devices. Like, oh, you know, I, I, you hear this so many times, people stop using the device because they, it ran out of batteries and they didn't have the desire to recharge it. <laughs> That's that, terrible. Yeah. Yeah. They but didn't understand have, the value. Mm. Exactly. If you have a really clear idea that this is a valuable thing, then the friction to plug it back in becomes de minimis. So that's really important too. The other nice thing that they can do, this taps into uh, near IALS hook model, which is uh, looking basically at kind of the triggering somebody to do a behavior. 
having just wearing something on your wrist, you see that device and consciously or subconsciously, that is some information in your environment that's kind of reminding you, hey, steps are, I'm, I'm wearing this so I can get more steps. That's triggering the behavior. Then having, you know, when you look at it, having a clear idea of what you're actually trying to do. All right, I want to get 10,000 steps. Then rewarding, rewarding you for doing the behavior. When I, when I get to 10,000 steps, I get a notification that says I, I did a great job. And then he also talks about something called the investment phase, which is all about increasing the likelihood of passing through this loop again. So this tech, certain technologies are really good at triggering, rewarding, and creating more investment in, in a behavior, but they're not necessarily good at helping you understand the value. So I think a lot of these, this health technology is best against the backdrop where somebody's been educated on the value of what they're doing in the first place. And then it's more of like an engagement strategy. So let, behavior, let me ask you before yeah. we go on, what sure. would you recommend as the best wearable if someone wanted to try it? Obviously Jawbone out. You mentioned Fitbit. I guess that's the gold standard. Is there a specific model that you prefer other than the others? Or is there another wearable that uh, you you would recommend as well? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm device agnostic. Um, although I think Fitbit's done the best job for sure. But in a month, somebody, Garmin, could come out with a device I like better. And I would want to use that. So I think that it's... While Fitbit has done the best job, that's usually who I recommend people get. I also say, which is the what's the device that you want to use the most? Use that one. Because again, you have to have motivation to actually want to engage in it. And sometimes people are like, you know, none of the Fitbit devices are pretty enough or, or attractive enough for me to wear on my wrist. So if you like the design, which is very subjective of something else, and you that makes you more motivated to use it, use that one. There's plenty of people who have done really well with Jawbones, for example. I just think on average, because of some of the limitations of how the data is kind of captured and delivered, then it's, it has less of a chance of being, you know, used in the way that you want it. But, but generally, you know, I, you know, I would guide people to say any one of these choices is, is better than none. Here's probably the best for these reasons. But if your heart is saying, I want to use this, I want to wear this one because I like it, then do that. And then again, you know, things can change. I was pretty disappointed with the Apple Watch. It's a cool, smart None of the apps work well enough. You know, they take too long for them to load. It's more of a real tracker than a, a performance enhancer. The information for health is buried. You have to go to, you have to, you know, go to the certain app and launch it and look at it versus it just serving it to you really easily. And plus, it kind of the way that it even delivers the information is, I think, not very helpful. So, you know, surprised that they did as poor of a job as I think that they did. I mean, you, you simply couldn't even have steps on your home screen, which when I found that, I was just mystified, honestly. I was like, you know, <laughs> come on. <laughs> but these things will change and they'll grow. And maybe next, maybe next year, Apple launches the best device available. And at that point, then I'd be happy to use that one. I'm also interested in what other services these apps and devices integrate with because mm. that, that matters too that change it then it allows for more personalization because if you're a runner and your app and or your device integrates with things like strava which just running and cycling then you can personalize your own experience your own preferences and and your health practice so that's if it plays well with others great some organizations try to create an entirely closed system and i like ones that are more open because it gives you more options 
Interesting. Yeah, great point. So get the one that you're actually going to use because you like the way it looks on your wrist or whatever, the one that you feel connected to. Great answer. And that's kind of like has an analogous part to it to exercise where I can tell you the best program to do for you. But if you're not going to enjoy it, if you don't like doing it, then you're not going to do it. So it, 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 you brought up a really important part. Let's talk about human OS and then we'll wrap things up. Great. Well, this has been, I developed my own behavior model after looking into a variety of different models. And the way that I created it is I deconstructed, which is tends to be how I do anything to try to understand things better. I'll try to deconstruct a topic into what I consider indivisible units. And with a lot of these behavior models, they the themes that are strewn throughout kind of touch back to similar points, whether this has to do with, you know, the you know, sort of a person's self-perception, their uh, their kind of immediate ability to, to take action or their volition at the moment. So they might be called different things, but they're not completely discrete from one another. So what I did is I broke down into individual pieces and I put together what's called the loop model. And what this loop model has is the, the executive summary of it is there are four stages, which is why should you do something? And this is the persuasive argument for this is appealing to your frontal cortex to this idea of like your your own rationale your belief about why something is valuable and this can really guide how you live in the world you know your perceptions about hey fat is good or bad for me or just saturated fat is is good or bad right it it can at least somewhat guide what you're trying to do whether or not you do it is another thing but that is very valuable information to have then, so it's, why should I do something? How do I do it? And that's then translating this, this is why you should do it, but this is what it looks like over a 24-hour period of a day or 168-hour period of a week. It's translating this into something that where there are actionable steps across your day. Am I doing it is then looking at, all right, am I engaging with it? And this is where the trackers come in. They can give you objective feedback on, on what you're doing. And then is it working? So why should I do it? How do I do it? Am I doing it? Is it working? That's the model by which HumanOS has been built. Dan's plan has been a beta site for about a year and a half, uh, and more than that. And it is me kind of building the tool and testing some ideas related to it. HumanOS is much closer to the full version of this model. And so what we're doing when we launch is we have health courses on every topic that you can imagine. Now, we're not going to have them all at first, but over time, we're going to continue to develop courses on subjects that matter to your health. And these can be related to just gut health, for example, or it can be related to a specific issue. So you can come in here and you can find good, credible information. And the goal is for us not to be comprehensive because every course then would be months to years long, but it's to be representative of what the comprehensive course might look like, but in a much more condensed fashion. And that's different than being selective, right? Now, selective is cherry picking. So for example, if there are 15 papers on a subject and three of them say, you know, fructose in high quantities is healthy for you, I'm just making this up. So sure. then, <laughs> no problem. Right. But then the other 12 say the opposite. You could be selective and focus on the three. They could be early studies, you know, low sample size, single blind, poor quality studies, but you can actually make seemingly a, a convincing argument to suit your point. 
So the way to, to actually do it is to then act, try to look at the body of evidence and say, okay, what is really the majority of the, the data say and is what we're teaching representative of that? And that helps you be, I think, less you know, responsive to just whatever comes out today, right? So that is how, and then the way that we educate is based to help somebody actually retain the information better than just listening or reading. And we use something called multi-elaborative encoding where you get colors and images and repetition to be able to then, you know, eight months later after you take a course, you can tell me, hey, this is, these are all the important points about vitamin D, for example. Whoa. Um, so wait, just to understand, so you the way you structure the delivery of the information, you've done research on the best colors and fonts or whatever else to use to create, to make sure that the, act, the people who watch actually learn it and are able to recall it later? Yeah, because... Wow, very cool. If you think about a book, you know, you might retain 25% of the information in the book, and then a month later, you retain a fraction of that, and then a fraction of that. You end up remembering a few anecdotes and maybe some of the main points. But with lifestyle stuff, it's in, you know, what we're looking at is what are the top 10 things that somebody should know on a subject, approximately, to, in order for them to, to guide the right behavior. Now, sometimes that action is inaction, because a lot of times a subject will become popular in terms of how much people are talking about it and trying it before the data really merits prioritizing that behavior over others. So, you know, that it's not like we're trying to sell any subject. It's just trying to review it and give somebody a very good understanding about where the data is now. Now they can choose to do it or not, but that's, that's, that's up to them. But, but yeah, so, so the courses are really important, but then, you know, for example, we're creating one on the Mediterranean diet and very compelling information. Some of the most successful diet trials ever have been looking at the Mediterranean diet versus, you know, standard diet comparisons. So it's something that has been around for a while and it's less, you know, a lot of people today know less about it. Other diets are more popular in terms of, you know, what's current, current, you know, now. <laughs> Paleo. Um, oh, excuse me. Had, exactly. Had a, yeah. Had you a know, piece uh, of uh, bone from bone broth stuck in my throat there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, not like I'm against, you know, paleo, but this as an Me example. Neither. So we, yeah, sure. We have this course on Mediterranean and then we have several, I'm working with four different chefs that are creating diet recipe packs that are in, uh, you know, that are designed in the, you know, Mediterranean style. So then now you have a recipe library that can, can simplify your daily health practice. So you've learned about its value and now you actually, that can really help motivate you to then want to then engage and change how you're preparing foods. We have a cooking skills class that then shows you how to become a better chef. So making, you know, it's like having a recipe is one thing, but having the knowledge and skill to be able to prepare it's another. So that's an example to kind of show the connection. We don't actually do diet tracking because I feel while there is value to it, it's a big conversation, but are, are you talking about the calories, the macronutrients? Yeah, yeah, that, I'm so, I'm so with you on that. Oh, yeah, I think occasionally doing it for a week or two can be very informative, and some people love it. So they, I mean, some people get addicted to actually tracking their calories and their sure. macros and stuff. But generally, for most people, I think that priming by showing you healthy, you know, like dietary styles every day is going to be more effective in what you eat than just trying to measure your foods. It's so funny. If you look at like a lot of different health apps, healthy foods that are, that you want to eat are not often in the library of choices, 
but what is is a bunch of fast foods that you know you probably don't want to eat. Like I can find the hamburger from McDonald's, and I know how many calories and protein and fat is in it. But you know this well-made sandwich or whatever from this local, you know, organic bakery or or deli, I can't find that in there. So it's it's kind of ironic that <laughs> many foods that you don't want to eat might not be in the that you want to eat are just not in even in the tracking system. So um, yeah, yeah, I just prefer to help. There's other ways that you can modify what somebody eats. You can make it easier for them. You can show them what's value. You can get them excited to make it. You can create some, try to create some community around that. So that's why that's you know one one example. And then we have with we track. We're, we're gonna we've integrated with about 50 different services from Fitbit, Apple Watch, Garmin, Jawbone. So whatever device that you choose to use or app, you can integrate that into HumanOS, and then we will create some. You know, we'll help you set goals and and track that behavior, uh, your behavior so you can stay engaged with these things that I call mundane but meaningful, like going to bed on time. You know, really, really important. So much about the science of sleep is really meant to then motivate you to go to bed on time. You know, it's Sure, not, sure. Right. So It's not as sexy as uh, toxic, endocrine-disrupting chemicals that are poured into your environment by the evil corporations, but probably much more impact getting your butt to bed on time. Yeah. It's mundane, but meaningful. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So as you can see that it, it's basically a pretty tight system where you are leveraging a lot of different elements of, of behavior to then try to just make it easier, help to people develop skills, make them more knowledgeable about lifestyle and health, and then make it easier for them to do it day by day. So one misperception is, well, once I learn it, then I don't, wouldn't need to use this tool anymore. And I continue to use human OS and, and elements on kind of our testing system just because it makes it easier for me to continue to do these behaviors that I believe in long term. So that's basically the value. And you have to have enough motivation to come in the first place and want to learn and to, and to try. But there's a lot of different entry points. I mean, you might just come for just recipes and use that successfully for a while, but then you might pick up a tracker, get into that you know, read some blogs, get turned on to some other information, say, Hey, I want to know more about fasting, take our fasting course. So I want this to accompany somebody. It'd be like a health companion for, for a long time and year by year usage might change. But, but yeah, I think it can support somebody's health practice or the, the behaviors that somebody engages in regularly and also change how you live by making you more knowledgeable on subjects you might already care about. Dan, this has been such a pleasure learning from you. It's just you just gave a masterclass on understanding ourselves, understanding our habits, our behaviors, understanding how to change it and what the path looks like, what the journey looks like, and then finished it off with how technology is going to help us get back in control of our health while in the past couple of decades, it's been kind of taking away from us. And yeah. then if you are on the fence about doing something with your health, Go to Dan's website, start to check this stuff out. Dan takes an approach, what I really like about him, he takes an approach where he's looking at how we should live based on our genes. In other words, that environment that we evolved in, right? But also using the available science to make better decisions on how to tweak things. And he's going to educate you and he's going to track your information 
and give you the tools, the information, and the understanding of why you need to do things. Dan, where should they go to learn more about Human OS? Yeah, so humanos.me is the website. We've not launched it right now since as we're talking, um, but we're going to launch it soon. So if what I would do is like check out dansplan.com. That is going to convert into humanos as soon as we launch or go to humanos.me. And um, it can't go wrong either way because even if you go to humanos.me right now, it'll just forward to, to Dansplan. But just so if it does, you're, you're not confused. And then I just started my own podcast, HumanOS Radio, and I'm interviewing um, only professors right now. So these are really people that are, you know, making day-by-day contributions to a specific aspect of health, whether it's standing, whether it's tension, whether it's nutrition, and um, and then do a you know a lot of writing on the blog, every sort of health topic, writing some a series on sugar, writing a series on aging that I've been working on for a little while. So that that is evolving, and yeah, you can go there. And then Twitter is Dan's Plan Health. Yeah, that, those are the different the different sources. Excellent. And I will have all that on the show notes. But if you're interested, I know it can be hard sometimes to listen to more scientific discussions about what really works. But that's how all this amazing stuff that we have in modern life came about through science and understanding what is actually going on will help you get better results because you won't get caught up in the guruism and uh, all the marketing. Dan, it's so funny. Giselle is a marketing professional. One of the things I want her to do is to write an article. She is not a health professional at all, right? I've helped her a lot. and She's learned a lot more, but she's not knowledgeable about it. However, she could write a better article on health, mm. on exercise than your average personal trainer, than your average guy with masters in exercise physiology. And it could be completely wrong, but she could write it in a way because of her marketing knowledge and people will eat it up, right? She could even become a guru, right? And But she has no actual knowledge. And so it's really important to get your information from science-based resources And what I love about your approach, as I mentioned before, is you're combining both experience, you're combining research as well, and you're keeping an open mind about things. And you're one of the people who I view who is on the cusp or on the frontier, rather, of, of this direction, the intersection between health, between exercise between technology. And it's just a really exciting time. And it's been an exciting opportunity to learn from you. What about some final words of inspiration? And we'll, uh, we'll wrap things up. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying all that, Ted. It's definitely my, my goal to, to try to be as knowledgeable as I can on kind of like an impossible amount of different subjects. And I have a whole method of attempting to stay on top of, of the different subjects, because I think there's real value to having breadth of knowledge. Uh, and it's, it with, it always comes with a little bit of frustration to not have depth of knowledge in every field. But if you approach your information, if you approach where you get your information from, you can do pretty well. So that actually might be a closing thought because there's so many things you could say, but be really careful about where you do get your information. Cause I completely agree with you. Some of the most popular health advocates have, it has everything to do with their marketing savvy and knowledge and it's not always connected with their 
that the the quality of their knowledge is not pointing finger at any individual. It's just a kind of a general assessment. And so that's a danger to the internet that the people that you're going to find very easily on a subject, you might find them just because they're very good engineers at, at marketing. And what I'd say is try to find somebody that you really trust their message and you understand how they're approaching it and they're, how they're going about even give, you know, coming upon recommendations for, for people. So know your source, try to, you know, find somebody that you really like and trust and don't read, you know, just anything, but spend a little bit more time to say, okay, who is this person? What's their background in the subject? It's funny, you know, one kind of point to this is there's health summits have become very popular. They'll have a, a you know, it's getting 30 people together on a subject. And I noticed that, that a bunch of these summits, you know, you had their, their list of experts, they had the same people. So this, this person is an expert on, you know, pregnancy and also in aging and also this and that, you know, and there's lots of it, people can self-ascribe expertise a little too easily these days. So just be careful about, you know, where you're getting your info and try to find the best source that you can and then invest some time there. Important parting words, Dan Party, thank you so much for your knowledge, your wisdom, and most importantly, your time. I know we need to get you back on the show because I want to hear the how. I want to hear this research that you've done on the, the Mediterranean diet. I love your breakdown of sleep. It's very different than anybody else who I've had on the show, including the sleep talks that I give. So can't wait for that. And like I said, thank you so much. And uh, it was a pleasure to finally connect with you. Likewise, Ted, absolute pleasure to be on your show. I was really looking forward to it, given, you know, the other shows I've heard, you know, of yours. And um, thank you for doing the work that you do.